Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majesty? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of God to us today. Father, now that we have read this passage of Scripture, we invite you to speak to us. Again, Lord, we want to be a people that are rooted and grounded and meditating constantly on your word. And so we are giving ourselves to your word now. We're setting time aside here in our public worship for not only the reading, but the teaching and preaching of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would prove once again that your word is mighty, that it is powerful, that it goes out and it accomplishes all that you intend for it to accomplish by your Spirit, in our lives. So Lord, do a great work in our hearts. Do a great work in our lives. And Lord, do a transformative work in our church so that we might continue to glorify you more and more as we continue moving forward as a church. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
So Exodus 15, we now come to a song, often called the Song of Moses. The children of Israel here are singing a song together. You know, music is powerful. Most of us understand that. This familiar paraphrase of a quote that's attributed to Andrew Fletcher underscores the point. He said, let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes the laws. His point is, if you control the music, that's really how you guide and direct the people. Music matters. Music is powerful. Music has the capacity to shape who we are, what we believe, what we trust in, what we treasure, what we want. I remember in high school, a really good friend of mine who had grown up in the church together with me, junior year, he began listening to extremely violent music. Um, and would play it in his car and with me all the time, but like really, really violent music. And it was amazing to watch that just in about a year's time, his mentality had shifted and actually even his actions had shifted and he started fighting with people and becoming angry and violent. And a lot of that is connected directly to the fact that that's what he was constantly putting in and allowing that to become the anthem of his life. And it started shaping and forming the way that he thought and acted. You know, music has the capacity to evoke emotions or feelings inside of us in really powerful ways. A well-crafted patriotic song can deepen your love for country. A well-crafted love song can stir up deep feelings of love and emotion for your spouse. Music can even transport us back to a time in our past or a season or a particular circumstance or experience and you hear a song you haven't heard in 20 years and boom, it's like you're right there again in high school or wherever that situation was. Now music has been around since before the dawn of time. Music existed in eternity past. In fact, Lucifer was heaven's worship leader Music also will continue on into eternity. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, we read this about what's going on in heaven. And they sang a new song. We are going to be a singing people for all of eternity. You know, every culture, every nation, every tribe, every people have had its music. And God's people are no exception. Here in this text, We are exposed to the first song recorded in Scripture. A lot of scholars see this as one of the earliest songs that we still have record of in all of history. There's plenty that we can learn here and plenty of fuel for the fire of our own worship from this song. There's also some instruction, actually maybe some correction regarding the music that guides us in our worship in the church. The first thing I want us to consider as we look at the song of Moses here is the occasion of the song. In other words, what is it that caused this song to come about? Most songs, and typically good songs, are birthed out of some sort of experience. Somebody goes through an experience and then they write a great song about it. This is why cover songs are often so terribly done. Even if the person has a great voice and can play an instrument well, 
a lot of times the critique is, well, they just don't have the, 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 the emotion or the feeling behind that that the original artist had when they composed the music. What is the experience, so to speak, or the occasion that gave rise to the song of Moses? Look at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So then Moses and the Israelites sang this song. Well, when? Immediately after crossing the Red Sea. Immediately after Yahweh, their God, had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians supernaturally. Miraculously, by parting the Red Sea, they get safely to the other side. Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the sea. And then they begin to sing a song. I want you to notice here that first comes the salvation and then comes the song. First comes the salvation, and then comes the song. The children of Israel had been enslaved. The children of Israel were ruthlessly oppressed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and things were getting worse and worse and worse. And they had just gone through the horrific and terrifying experience of being pursued through the wilderness or the desert by Pharaoh in his elite army. And they had their backs against the wall of the Red Sea. And they knew that they were about to be destroyed. They knew they were about to be wiped out. And yet God intervened and he saved them and he delivered them from their peril. Response, now they sang. God had put a new song on their lips. Their hearts welled up with within them, and they couldn't but help to sing. In fact, in verse 1 there where it says, I will sing, that can be translated as, I must sing. In other words, it's almost like God's people, after such a great deliverance, after all that they had been through that was so miserable, now being delivered from that, it was as if they couldn't help but sing. They had to get it out. They had to express themselves in song and in praise to their God. This same experience was widely reported when the chains of oppression and slavery were finally broken from our African-American brothers and sisters after the Civil War. Fanny Berry, who was a former slave in Virginia, said this about the day her and the other slaves were emancipated. She said, when we knew that we were free, we, oh baby, we began to sing such rejoicing and shouting you never heard in your life. Felix Haywood, who was enslaved in Texas, was interviewed about that day as well. Here's what he said. Hallelujah broke out. Everyone was a singing. We was all walking on golden clouds. Hallelujah. First came the salvation and then came the song. The two things are inseparable. And church, so it is with us. Because we have experienced such a great salvation, such a great deliverance from Almighty God, we can't help but sing. We've been saved, of course, from sin and a certain death. So we're a singing people because we're a saved people. I titled today's sermon, not the Song of Moses, but the Song of the Redeemed. The Song of the Redeemed. 
And the reason for that is because you notice here in verse 1 that this is not just Moses' song. This is everyone's song. It was Moses and the people of Israel singing this song together. And you'll notice at the end in verses 20 and 21 that Miriam and all of the ladies pick up instruments and they begin singing and dancing as well. This was everyone's song. It was the song of the redeemed. And the same is true for us today, church. When we gather to sing in the church and we gather to sing praises to our God, what's going on up here, this is not a performance that we're all sitting back and evaluating, right? We're not Simon Cowell going, eh, kind of like you're doing an okay job. It's not a performance we're evaluating. And guess what? This isn't the worship leader song. This isn't just Ryan's song to sing or our worship team's song. This is our song to sing. This is the song of the redeemed. I know some of you, like me, would want to respond and say, but I'm not a good singer, Pastor Daniel. Well, listen, neither am I. And listen, that doesn't matter. Did you know that Moses was over 80 years old at this time? Miriam was probably even older. Out of this almost 2 million people that had left Egypt during this exodus, I can guarantee you that Moses and Miriam were not the best vocalists in that group. Even if they had good voices, their glory days of singing were probably behind them. And Israel had its share of wonderful vocalists, but that didn't stop Moses from singing God's praises. That didn't stop Miriam from leading the charge among the women to sing God's praises. And that didn't stop all of God's people from singing his praises. It's not about how good we sing. That doesn't matter. The question is not, am I a good singer? The question is, is he a good savior? And if he is, then he's worthy of your song. This is the occasion of the song. First came the salvation, then came the song. Let's now, though, focus in on the song itself. What is this song about? Well, answer, God it's very Godward in its focus. A.W. Pink, famous Bible commentator, picked up on this when he wrote, and I quote, and what did they sing about? Their song was about Jehovah. It was all concerning himself and nothing about themselves. The word Lord occurs no less than 12 times within 18 verses. The pronouns he, him, thy, thou, and thee are found 33 times. How significant and how searching is this, he writes. How entirely different from modern hymnology. So much of today's hymns, I love this, he says, if hymns they deserve to be called, are full of sentimentality instead of divine adoration. They announce our love to God instead of his love for us. They recount our experiences instead of his mercies. Sad index of our low state of spirituality. Different far was the song of Moses and Israel. I will exalt him in verse 3, sums it all up, end quote. This song that Moses and the children of Israel had composed was about God, about what he had done and about who he is. And that's the way we're going to organize our teaching on this song by looking at its two main emphases. The first emphasis is what God has done. Now I want us to consider first what God has done to Pharaoh and to the 
Egyptians. The simple way to explain it is told to us in verse 1. Here's what God had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then this is stated in different ways throughout the song. Drop down to verse 4 with me. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then again, drop down to verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So what had God done to Egypt and to Pharaoh? God had destroyed them. God had drowned them in the sea. But they also sang about what God had done for Israel, what God had done for themselves. And what did God do for his own people? Well, verse 13 tells us that he redeemed them. Very important word there, that God redeemed them. And we see redemption language again in verse 16, where it talks about the people by whom he had purchased. The word redemption means to buy something back, or it could also mean just to get something back to oneself. So if you had something that was lost, it's getting it back. You're redeeming it back to yourself. If you remember the movie Taken, that's the idea of redemption, getting something back from slavery. And I was reminded as I was thinking about that movie taken of that phone conversation that Liam Neeson has with his daughter's kidnappers. That's like famous, that quote there. And I, I listened to it again on YouTube and I thought it's almost like God and Pharaoh having their conversation, Liam Neeson and the abductor of his daughter in this movie. Here's what he says. Listen to the the notes of redemption here. He says over the phone, I don't know who you are. I guess one main difference is God knows who Pharaoh is. But other than that, listen, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. And then the abductor, sort of like Pharaoh, says over the phone, good luck. It's almost like what Pharaoh did, tempting Yahweh over and over. And Yahweh was saying, let my people go. Let my people go. And if you don't, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to destroy you. And ultimately, Yahweh does. He redeems his people. Now the redemption of Israel foreshadows the even greater redemption of God's people by our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave, Jesus redeems us from the power of sin and the power of death. Here's Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And see, the exodus was always meant 
to point forward to the greater exodus that Jesus would accomplish for God's people at Calvary. In fact, that explains why on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, when Moses and Elijah come back from heaven and are speaking with Jesus, Luke tells us in Luke 9 that the conversation was about the exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. In fact, in Revelation, the song that we sing for all of eternity, one of the songs is the song of Moses and the Lamb. John was comfortable connecting this amazing, pivotal moment of salvation history under Moses, the Exodus, to the pivotal moment of salvation history, the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that he could say that we will be singing of the song of Moses and of the Lamb in heaven, because there is one Exodus, and Moses' Exodus pointed forward to Christ's Exodus, where he delivers us out of sin and slavery. And notice, just as God drowned Israel's greatest enemy in the sea, what does God do to our enemy? Sin. He drowns our sin in the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. So first, this song emphasizes what God has done. He's destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he's redeemed his own people from a certain death. But it also now reveals to us who God is. In light of what God has done, what did Israel learn about the God that they were worshiping? Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the attributes of God in this song. Rather, it's a reflection on what God's actions reveal about his character. They were able to say, okay, this is what God did for us. That, this is what that means about the kind of God we are worshiping. There's five things I want to point out for us about who God is. Number one, God is a Savior. This is explicit in verse two, where it says, and he has become my salvation. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that when Israel was on the other side of the Red Sea, Moses' orders to the children of Israel were very simple. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation which the Lord will work for you today. That's chapter 14, verse 13. But now on this side of the Red Sea, God has actually become their salvation. They were standing and witnessing it, and then God saved them, and he delivered them. And so as Moses composes this song, he's able to look at the deliverance and recognize God alone is our Savior. We cannot take credit for our deliverance. We cannot take credit for our salvation, Moses knows. And listen, church, you and I cannot take credit for our salvation any more than Israel could take credit for parting the Red Sea. That was God's work. And your salvation is God's work. He has done the work for us. We stand and see the salvation of the Lord. The second thing about God that we see in this text is that God is a warrior. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, or Yahweh, is his name. This is incredible. The God of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh, is a man of war. Now, why would this matter to Israel at this point? 
Well, this would matter because as a small nation that is setting out into a hostile world with all sorts of enemies around them, it was important for them to know that no matter what enemy they came up against, their God was a man of war. That their God, Yahweh, would fight their battles for them. Because if he wasn't there to fight for them, they were hopeless. Just as they were hopeless with Egypt. They had nothing that they could do to resist the chariots of Pharaoh and the foot soldiers of Pharaoh. They needed Yahweh to fight their battles for them. And he did and he would. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now our God is still a man of war. However, our enemies are not political enemies. Our enemies are not military enemies. We're not fighting against other nations. No, no, no. Our enemies, church, are much worse than that. Our enemies are sin. The demonic spiritual forces and an evil world system that opposes God and opposes what is good and righteous. We live in a world that is broken right now. We live in a world where evil abounds and where wicked things are happening. And at times it can become discouraging when we watch the news, when we see the things that are going on that seem to be unchecked. And we say, we don't have the resources, we don't have the strength to stop every bad guy or every bad event in the world that is happening right now. But our God is a warrior. And ultimately, through Christ, sin has been dealt with and death has been defeated. And ultimately, both sin and death, as well as the devil himself, are going to be fully and finally eradicated forever. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, we read this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then look at this. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our God is a warrior defeating and destroying sin, death, and the devil. The third thing we see about who God is, is that God is omnipotent, which is a very fancy word that means that God is all-powerful, that God can accomplish anything and everything that he desires. We see this in verse 6 where the song says that God is glorious in power. And of course, we see it in verse 8 where God parts the Red Sea. You've got to be pretty strong to be able to do that. God is omnipotent. Isaiah 43.13 reminds us of this truth. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Nothing can prevent God from doing what he wants to do. No one can stop God. Matthew 19.26, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are are possible. Church, we praise God that he is powerful enough to accomplish all that he pleases. That no one and no thing can frustrate the plans of our God. Notice in verse 7 that Pharaoh and all the might of Egypt was like stubble consumed by the unparalleled might of Yahweh. It was like God just brushed them into the fire. 
That's how strong he is. He took the greatest global empire at that time and destroyed them like stubble in a fire. And we worship God because of this. That our God, who fights our battles for us, is powerful enough to do all that he pleases and all that he promises to us. Fourth, we see that God is holy. Verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Answer, no one. No one is like the Lord. No one is like our God. He and he alone is utterly unique. And that's what holiness means, that God is categorically different from anything and anyone else. He's in a league of his own. And Moses and the children of Israel were able to look and say, of all the gods that Egypt worshipped, they were nothing. Of all the gods that the pagan nations that we're going to go in and have battle with, they're all nothing. There is only one God. He alone is God. And he is mighty. And he is unique. In 2 Samuel 7.22, we read this, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Fifth and finally, this song is a song praising God because God is faithful. God is faithful. In verse 13, we read of God's steadfast love. His steadfast love. And what that means is His covenant-keeping love. It means that God made promises to Israel and He's delivered on them. God had promised Moses and the Israelites I'm going to deliver you from Pharaoh. I'm going to free you from bondage here. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt to worship me, to be my people. And God delivered on that promise. And not only that, God promised that he would lead them into a promised land, a land that was their own. And the centerpiece of that would be Jerusalem and God's temple there, his holy abode as we read about. And notice that in verses 13 through 17, Moses is able to speak of their trek or their journey into the promised land as if, as if it's already happened. He's saying that the nations there are going to tremble because they're going to hear of Yahweh and his power and that God will establish them in his holy place. And so Moses is able to look forward with confidence that God would deliver on his promises. And you know, we can look back at the history of Israel and say, God did deliver. He did bring them into the promised land. He did establish his temple there in Jerusalem. And he fulfilled these promises to Moses. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 is a beautiful verse. Some of us have it memorized. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Today, church, we still praise God because of his faithfulness. Because God has delivered on his promises in our past, and because God will deliver on his promises to us in the future. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Finally, I want to create a little bit of application for us this morning from this song. We've talked about the occasion of the song. We've talked about the 
breakdown of the song here or the emphases of the song. And lastly, I want to provide for us a little bit of application from this song of the redeemed. A little bit of application, first of all, for our own songs as we sing songs together in church. Now, I know music is a touchy subject because everybody has their preferences. Everybody has their opinions about songs, about song selection, about music styles, and about who gets to sing and play and do all of that. So I know it's touchy, but I find it instructive that we don't have record of the melody or the beat or the musical style, only the lyrical content. Do you notice that? We don't have any record of this is how you play the Song of Moses. This is how the Song of Moses sounded. The only thing we have record of is the lyrical content. So this isn't hip-hop, this isn't alternative or jazz or classical or any other genre of music that we're aware of. We're not given that information. And what's so beautiful about that is as the gospel is spread literally around the world, and has infiltrated different nations and cultures and tribes and tongues, the songs of the redeemed in style have been as varied as the peoples that the gospel has reached. But the songs of the redeemed in substance have largely stayed the same. Isn't that beautiful? In our church music, styles vary, but substance stays the same. That's where our unity is. And that's why we should be able to appreciate beautiful, God-honoring worship from different traditions and backgrounds that we might not be familiar with. And that's why we should gladly receive the worship that's being sung in our church so long as the content of it is God-honoring. Content is king. Our content in our singing ought to be Godward in its focus. Focusing on what he's done and on who he is. And so now I know during our closing worship song, everybody's going to sit there and pay very close attention to every lyric that Ryan and the team sing for us. Which is good though, honestly. We should all have listening ears. What are we singing in church? Is this just about what songs are cool or what songs are popular? No, this is about what songs are helping us to communicate the truth about who God is and what he has done. And of course, the more beautiful and the more excellent the music can be, the better. We should do everything we do as well as we can for the glory of God. But the most important thing is always the content. What about a little bit of application for ourselves before we close here? A couple of points of application. First, listen, although this was a corporate worship song, meaning meaning everybody was intended to sing it, you need to notice that every singer personally appropriated it. Look at verse 2 again of Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. See, it's not enough for us to just attend church. And it's not enough for us to even just mouth the songs during worship. You must personally take hold of God by faith. You have to decide in your own heart. And you can make this decision now. You can make this decision today, right here in this church, 
that this is my God and I will praise him. Moses and the children of Israel had decided that the God of the Red Sea was their God. And you have to make a decision in your own life where you say the God of the Red Sea and the God of Calvary's cross, this is my God and I will praise him. And again, you can do that today. You can in your own heart turn to God and say, you are my God. I'm going to praise you from this day forward with my life and worship you and follow you. The next thing we need to notice or think on this morning as a point of application goes back to the point, first comes the salvation, then comes the song. For those of us who have experienced salvation, we should ask ourselves, where am I at in worship? Am I engaged? Is it heartfelt? Am I singing a song to the Lord because of what he has done for me? Or during the singing of the church, do I have my arms crossed and I'm disengaged and not paying attention? Not that there's anything inherently wrong with crossing your arms, by the way, but I'm trying to create an overall posture of being disinterested. So are, are we disinterested? Are we thinking about other things? Are we checked out or are we just kind of mouthing the lyrics as it's going by and not, not worshiping the Lord from our hearts? Is that where we're at? Church, listen, we ought to be people whose hearts, every time we gather and sing, whose hearts are re-engaged in praise and in worship of our God. Well, Daniel, I'm just not a passionate person. I just don't express myself. We're all passionate people. You know, I just watched thousands of men from every age, every race, every ethnicity, every religion, every background go completely nuts in the streets of Toronto last Thursday night after the Raptors beat the Warriors. Men everywhere screaming their heads off and going crazy. Most of those people would probably say, I'm not a very passionate guy. Listen, we're all passionate. We all get passionate over certain things. Shouldn't the worship of our God be the thing that stirs up the most passion in each and every one of us? Now, I do recognize people have different personalities. We're not all crazy and uh, uh, eccentric in our worship, and I understand that crazy is a bad word. I shouldn't use that. What I mean to say is we're not all, somebody help me out, exuberant maybe, um, and we don't express ourselves that way. But you'll notice in Scripture that there are a whole range of postures and physical expressions that God's people have used to worship Him throughout history. Everything from raising their hands, to clapping their hands, to being on their knees, to dancing like Miriam. We see all these different postures of praise. And again, we're all wired different. And I'm not saying that we all are supposed to do all of those things. I'm not going to grab a tambourine and start dancing like Miriam. You're all saying, thank you, please don't. Um, but what is the one thing we all could come back to and that we all should come back to scripturally? Answer is we should all be singers. The scriptures command us, mandate us to sing to our God. And that's the thing that all of us should be doing. No matter what other postures we might have, we should be a singing people, generally speaking. I want you to notice Colossians 3.16 teaches this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So if you find yourself as a Christian, 
not engaged in worship. How, how do you fix that? The answer is rehearse the gospel. Remind yourself over and over and over again of the great salvation that God has achieved for you through the work of Christ on your behalf. Because I'm telling you, first comes the salvation, then comes the song. And as we remind ourselves and immerse ourselves in the truth of our salvation, you'll find yourself beginning to sing. Related to that, and as a final point of application, I just want to say to us, church, that our corporate worship matters. It does. What we do when we gather and we sing praise to God, it really matters. First and foremost, because engaged, heartfelt worship glorifies God. But secondly, because engaged, heartfelt worship is a witness to non-believers. When people are in our church, when people are visiting, if what they see when they look around during our worship is a lot of disengaged, heartless worship going on, where we're not paying attention, where we're not singing, where we don't really care about the lyrics, they conclude God must not be that great. Or these people don't know God. Whereas if people walk into a church where there is heartfelt, engaged worship, passionate singing of God's people, people look around and they say, their God must be great because he is greatly to be praised. And isn't that what we want when our friends and our family, work, or family members or coworkers show up to church? Isn't that the conclusion we want them to draw from everything we're doing here? That our God is great and he is greatly to be praised? Let me close with Psalm 98, 1 through 6. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Well, at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as I close us in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing text of Scripture, this very first song that is recorded in your word for us as believers to be encouraged and taught from. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the gift of music as a powerful way of expressing what we believe and what we feel and what we experience in our lives. And Lord, we're so thankful that the church for 2,000 years and Israel for 1,500 years before that has developed beautiful songs of praise and worship that we get to benefit from. Lord, I'm also thankful that we get to develop new songs of worship and praise constantly as ways of expressing ourselves to you. And Lord, this, this day and every day, we desire to be a people who are singing to the Lord a new song because you have done marvelous things. We look to the fact that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. We look to the fact that you sent your Son as our Savior. And through his perfectly righteous life and his 
substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we now by faith can experience forgiveness and be brought into a relationship with you. Lord, you have done marvelous things for us. And I pray that we would be a joyful people who constantly are singing the praises of our God. Lord, I pray for Ryan as he continues to guide and lead our worship ministry in this church. That you'd give him wisdom and give me wisdom and the leadership team wisdom as we select songs to guide our corporate worship. We pray that our songs would be rich in their theology. That they would point us to what you have done and who you are. And that as we sing songs to you as a church, we would bring much glory and honor to you. And Lord, lastly, we pray that as we worship you with hearts of gratitude, that God, you would bring non-believers into a relationship with you as they look at us and they conclude that God must be here and he must be amazing if people worship him like that. So Lord, use us to be a bright witness in our worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.